Come on in. Good morning. How are you? Um, we are in the season of Epiphany, actually, in the church calendar. This is the fifth Sunday after the Epiphany. And uh, those readings in the lectionary, we just find ourselves, because we follow the lectionary at this point in the year, we find ourselves in Matthew. Um, last week, Tim started with the Beatitudes, and we're going to continue that reading this morning. So let's, let's get into it. You've probably heard uh, this quote, at least some version of it, by uh, an English, English philosopher, mathematician. His name is Bertrand Russell. He says that the whole problem with this world is that fools and fanatics are always so certain of themselves, and wiser people are so full of doubts. It's such a great quote, isn't it? It's even better when you know that it, he said this long before the advent of the internet, so if he could see us now, right? And I, I, it turns out that Russell actually, his axiom was studied, has been studied, and there's data. Sorry, am I like making noises? There's data to back it up. It's this cognitive uh, bias called the Dunning-Kruger effect. Maybe you knew about it. Um, it's named after the two researchers who initially, initially measured it. Their data says that often people who are bad at something or who don't know much about something believe that they're actually good at it and know a lot about it. Wikipedia's definition is hilarious. It defines it as whereby people with low ability expertise or experience tend to overestimate their ability or knowledge. I don't know why that cracks me up. Low ability, low expertise. And I certainly, I find myself in that category. Um, the flip side is true too. People who are really good at things actually believe that they are bad at it. So amateurs are often overconfident and experts are underconfident. So like the way I think I can play pickleball, you know. But their, their study showed that gun owners, I'll give you a couple examples, who think that they were highly knowledgeable about gun safety actually score the lowest on gun safety tests. Not great. Medical workers, the people who process samples for uh, medical test results, they rate themselves as highly competent in their jobs. They are actually five times, they are five times as likely to make mistakes as those in comparable jobs. Elderly people, you know, they think often they can, they're better drivers than they actually are. They're four times, according to their study, more likely to make unsafe driving errors. And, and the people with the unhealthiest lifestyle habits rate themselves as comparatively healthier than they actually are. So I bring all that up, I mean, mostly because I just find that really funny and so incredibly true. But not because I don't think we know our own ignorance about the Sermon on the Mount. Like, we, don't, we, we understand what we don't understand generally. But I think that sometimes when it comes to this portion of Matthew, um, we, are, we know it so well, it's so familiar to us, you know, that it doesn't mean much anymore. You know, it kind of falls flat. And familiarity can breed that kind of complacency. If you've been around church very long at all, it's easy to take for granted the Sermon on the Mount. And yet it is, uh, which Tim started with the Beatitudes last week, but it is really the manifesto of the alternative society that formed around Jesus. It's the ethical blueprint for the Christian life. And the complacency can be true in this portion of the Sermon on the Mount this week about salt and light. 
I'm sure you have memories, if you've been, a, if you were a church kid at all, of Sunday school lessons where your teacher said to get out of the salt shaker, right? So maybe this morning we can just kind of commit together to look at it with fresh eyes, listen to it with fresh ears, and maybe have a fresh perspective. In this section of the Sermon on the Mount, the first kind of major piece of teaching after the Beatitudes, Jesus uses two really straightforward and simple metaphors, salt and light. It's kind of as an orienting piece for the, whole, the rest of the whole sermon. Salt to preserve and flavor and light to penetrate the world's darkness. So first, let's look at salt. I think living as most of us do in a culture of plenty, we take for granted salt. I mean, we can just run down to the high V, right? Um, but as Mark Kolansky, this guy wrote this book called Salt, A World History. He said, from the beginning of civilization until about 100 years ago, salt was one of the most sought-after commodities in human history. The ancients believed that salt would ward off evil spirits. Religious covenants were sealed often with salt. Salt was used for medicinal purposes, to disinfect wounds, to slow bleeding, and to treat skin, skin diseases. Roman soldiers were sometimes paid in salt. Uh, that's where we get our English word for salary. Brides and grooms uh, often rubbed themselves with salt to increase their or enhance, enhance their fertility. And of course, Romans were smart enough to use it on their vegetables, just like we do. Around about 10,000 years ago, in fact, dogs were first domesticated with salt. They would leave salt, people would leave salt around the, out, the exteriors of their houses to draw the dogs in and to, to entice the, the dogs to domesticate. And of course, in all the centuries before refrigeration, salt was essential for food preservation. And we use salt all the time. I'm sure it's on your tables in every house. It accentuates the flavors. It uh, melts ice on our driveways. It softens water. It soothes sore throats. Um, does anybody else's family, is, are they grossed out by your use of the neti pot? It rinses sinuses. I love it. My family is like, please get that away from me. It eases swelling. It cleanses wounds. And in fact, if we don't have enough salt in our bodies, we die. So I, I do, I'm aware, you know, it takes, I can take this metaphor, it's possible to take it way too far. No single descriptor from scripture, salt, light, bride, clay, sheep, dove, soil, none of those will capture or contain, of course, the entirety of what it means to live as a follower of Christ. But when Jesus calls his listeners the salt of the earth, he's saying something really profound, something we can easily miss in our 21st century context. Or we miss it at least because it's just so familiar to us. He begins this section of the sermon by saying, you are the salt. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how can its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything, but it is thrown out and trampled underfoot. I think it's interesting here that he does not say, you ought to be salt, or perhaps if you try a little bit harder, you'll be saltier, or even you're encouraged to become salt. There's no promise that, that if we become salt, God will love us more. The language Jesus uses here is 100% descriptive. He's telling us who we are. It's a statement of identity. We are the salt of the earth. We are that which will enhance, which will soothe and preserve. For better or for worse, we are the salt of the earth, and what we do with our saltiness does actually matter. Whether we want it to or not, or whether we are intentional about it or not, it is actually who we, who we are. It's both good news 
and it's a challenge to believe and to become what we already are. We don't say at dinner, pass the salt, you know, and hope that it will be salty. We know it'll be who it is. It'll be what it is. We are just salt by how we exist. We, um, we run at Redemption Church, we run a program here once a year for three months called Strengthening Families. I talk about it all the time. You guys probably heard me talk about it, but SFP, um, in collaboration with a bunch of um, people from the county mental health, foster care system, the Department of Corrections, we pull off this class for families. And we have a bunch of social workers that join us in that effort. So it's a lot of people that don't go to this church, but one night a few years ago, and I think Brian and Kat Hogan were in the atrium with me, and these two social workers kind of were fussing. They were personal friends. They were kind of fighting with each other in a pretty casual way. And one of them cussed, and the other one said, clean up your language, like you are in a church. And of course we laughed, and it was really laughable to know if they would have known how foul-mouthed we are. <laughs> but, but the point is, in just this kind of corny way, the point is that just by being in a church, like we didn't, of course we didn't use the metaphor, we weren't even talking about Jesus in this class, but just by being in church, they just kind of knew that there was something different and that they were supposed to act differently or something. And I don't even think they were believers, but that was the effect just being in a church had. We're salty like that, apparently. And I think we are in a million different ways. Just as living, a, a, by being a follower of Christ and by living that way, the way you show saltiness in the world is emulating Christ and by what he had just outlined in the Beatitudes. You want to be who Jesus named us to be? Be merciful, he says. Be a peacemaker. Be meek in every area of life, and you will be a preserving agent. And the you here is not just you individually, but you collectively, you as a group. The language in these metaphors are, uh, they speak of a communal reality. In fact, I think colloquially the better translation is y'all. The American South got it right, y'all. The best translation is, no one individual embodies salt or light. Y'all are the salt of the earth. The full community is needed. Together, y'all make it up. You make up the salts. My, um, my daughter goes to school in what I think is the South, in Northwest Arkansas. She goes to the University of Arkansas. And there's so many Southerners there. I, I, I think we knew that there would be a lot of people from Arkansas, but there's Texas. All her friends are from Tennessee, Georgia, all these really Southern places. One of her friends was at our house, and he said to her, are y'all going to go get y'all's picture taken? And we were like, first of all, where have we sent you to school? But also... <laughs> The meaning, his meaning was really clear. He wasn't saying, Sophia, when are you getting your picture taken? He was saying, when are you as a group getting your picture taken? Salt is just not effective on its own. What good, after all, is just one little grain of salt? But y'all as a community, together, are very salty. But if salt loses its taste, and Jesus does give this little warning here, he says, if salt is, loses its saltiness, it's useless and should be just thrown out on the ground. Now, I'm told that salt cannot go bad. It doesn't have an expiration date. But I think the warning here is clear. If you are salt, you cannot unmake yourself as salt. He's simply saying we are to be distinct. Um, if we have been sucked into the empire of this world and look exactly the same as the culture around us, we are not blessing the world in the way that salt blesses its meat. So it might be 
it might as well be thrown out and trampled underfoot, the Bible says. But we are salt, and God has scattered us to all these different places so that we might bring life where there is death, that we might preserve where there is decay. He didn't call us out of the world in fear or, or retreat, but into the world. In John 17, uh, Jesus prays, I'm not asking you to take them out of the world, but I ask you to protect them from the evil one. They do not belong to the world, just as I do not belong to the world. As you have sent me into the world, so have I sent them into the world. Just like God did not save Israel from the Gentiles, God saved Israel for the Gentiles. He was rescued, and he's rescued us for the world. There's another thing in this passage that I think is easy to miss the importance of in our kind of modern world, where salt is pretty cheap. Um, but imagine what Jesus' first followers would have heard when he called them salt, a precious, precious commodity. Remember what sort of people he was actually addressing in the Sermon on the Mount. He was talking to the poor, the mournful, the persecuted, the hungry, the crippled, the frightened, the outcast, the misfit, the disreputable, the demon-possessed. You, he told them. You are the salt of the earth. You are to be, not to be cleaned up, not to be shiny, not to be fashionable or even well-fed. You guys who have been rejected and wounded and unloved, you are essential. You are worthwhile. You are treasured. And Jesus was telling, telling them who they were. You are my treasure. So for all of us who have spent years trying to kind of earn divine favor, maybe believing that your own kind of just being better and being good might someday make us precious in God's sight. I hope this metaphor will just, just stop that for you. Jesus knowingly named a commodity that was priceless in his time and place. And in doing so, he conferred great, great value on those who did not consider themselves valuable. And he's still doing this for us, for me, for you now. For who you are fundamentally, not who you need to be or who you're trying to be, but who you are. The second uh, section in this part of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew is the light. He says, you are the light of the world. A city built on a hill cannot be hidden. No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it under a bushel basket, but on a lampstand. And it gives light to all in the house. And in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. The light, too, was a common religious metaphor in Jesus' community. In Psalm 119, God's word described, is described as a lamp unto one's feet and a light unto one's path. But here Jesus does something a little bit different with the light metaphor. He shifts the location from outside of the person to inside of the person. In this passage, God's light is not external. It's not just leading the way for us to follow. But instead, God's light has become embedded in our own being. And just like the salt, Jesus is speaking about our identity here too. In accepting our part of Jesus' mission, we become the flame. We become the very light of God. First salt, and then this manifest kind of openness of the light of the world. Even at the outset of Jesus' ministry, I think, especially in the book of Matthew, Jesus seems to be aware that there could be persecution or oppression for his uh, disciples and that they will be tempted to hide their discipleship. 
They will be tempted to hide it under a, a basket instead of hiding, putting it on a lamp for everyone to see. He tells them you just can't succumb to that kind of temptation. Light is utterly necessary for growth in the new world. And they were to be God's light now. Through their faith and their service, God and God's work will be illuminated. He's told the disciples who they are, salt, and now he seems to be teaching them what a difference that identity will make. Uh, there's this guy, uh, Rod Dreer is his name. He wrote a book a handful of years ago called The Benedict Option. Did anybody read The Benedict Option? Oh, good, okay. In it, he argues, <laughs> it doesn't matter, he, he argues that we are on the cusp of a new dark age, that the light of Christian faith is flickering out, um, that shrinking churches and watered-down spirituality are evidence of that. And now what we see is our, our individual moral choices are nothing more than, he says, expressions of what the individual feels is right. What we feel as individuals is right. He argues that the end uh, of the end of the point of modernity is when a free, choosing individual finds meaning in nothing but himself. And this is, again, according to him, what happens when God is taken out of the calculation, that we lose any idea of what it means to be human. Are we entering a new age? I, I, I don't know. I certainly don't think I would agree with his premise entirely, but I will say it seems dark sometimes, doesn't it? I mean, I may be just at the age where it's kind of coming into focus for me, but uh, I do think there's darkness. Our culture of consumerism that has so completely engulfed us, myself included, that we just can't even seem to get out of it. A political system that has more than just let us down. It's corrupted and distorted. The exploitation of people, the brutality, I could go on. But even if we don't agree with Dreer's entire kind of argument, I think we can probably agree that the world does tend toward chaos. It does seem to tend toward disorder and darkness. You know, experiments in darkness have shown that for extended periods of time, it completely unhinges human beings. There was a cave researcher who stayed in a cave for about six months in Texas. He got so lonely, so terribly lonely, he tried by spreading jam on the cave floor, I assume with a flashlight, to catch a mouse with a dish towel. When he missed and the mouse ran off, he wrote in his journal, desolation overwhelms me. He was so desperately lonely. Because to be in total darkness is to be cut off, to be isolated, to be alone. I mean, without light, we just we lose our humanity and sometimes even our minds. And there are those living like this in metaphorical darkness. And here Jesus is telling us that we are the light of the world in your deepest identity as the church. And we bring, when we bring all the blessings of the new kingdom, when we bring the fruits of the spirit to bear in this world, peace, kindness, patience, gentleness, goodness, we crack open and penetrate that darkness somehow with our light. And those living in despair and in darkness will be drawn to us and find that God is good and gracious and a light in the darkness. Remember in John 1, uh, Jesus shows up and the light shines in the darkness and the darkness did not overcome it. 
Light is used in a lot of other ways in other places in the scripture, but here it's like saying he is like the sun and we are like the moon. I really shouldn't talk about the sun and moon and I... Everything I know about astrology or astrophysics is from like a YouTube video and Neil deGrasse Tyson. (laughs) But I do know that during a complete solar eclipse, that tiny little sliver of of sun that peeks out uh, from around the moon that's covering it, that little sliver just by itself is brighter than 10,000 moons at their fullest. So the more we look to Christ and to his goodness, the more we will shine and reflect the goodness like the moon reflects the sun. We don't let the world eclipse this light, even though it will try, won't it? The world will try to engulf us in its darkness. It will try to suck us into a culture that tells us that acquisition, that status, that greed are what makes you shiny and salty. It will try to put its basket over that light, but Jesus says, first, know who you are in order to be who you are so you can shine. And not just around here at Redemption Church, although we do need you to do that too. The shine when you put in a full day's work, I think, we're shining. When you love the kids in your classroom or in your home, when they're really unlovable. You shine when you're patient with the grocery store clerk when they're training, or the DMV lady who does not want to be bothered with you. You could tell the week I've had. (laughs) When you love your partner, that might be struggling, this kind of shining is distinct because it's intended to reflect back God, not on us. Jesus has a little something to say about that later in the Sermon on the Mount. But being a light in a crooked and twisted world, you shine in the world because you are bathed in Christ's light so that people might find Christ in us and in our lives. And the world needs us, you know. I think it's a privilege. You know, it's not a time to retreat or to fret the real light of Christ will shine through the church, through y'all. Has anyone read the book, The Road? Probably more of you have read this one than the last one. The Road from a few years ago. I think it was like, a, I think it won a Pulitzer surprise. Cormac McCarthy in the book, um, this is, is, Cormac McCarthy is the author. In his book, there's a father and a son who are living in basically a post-apocalyptic wasteland. And they're trying to get to the coast. They're trying to get south so they will not die in the winter. And to get south, they have to avoid, it's, it's terrible, they have to avoid this lawless bands of gangs and marauders and cannibals. And at one point, the boy says to his father, we're going to be okay, aren't we, Papa? We're going to make it, right, Papa? And his dad says, yes, we are going to make it because we are carrying the fire. And Jesus says, we are the metaphorical carriers of the fire. We carry it into our homes, into our relationships, into our cubicles and our offices. So I pray today that as we reflect on this part of the Sermon on the Mount, we can maybe hear it with fresh ears and be reminded of who we are and that we are to shine and season for the world, for Olathe, for your families. And maybe we can just remember those words from from that book when the father says to his son, we are going to make it because we're carriers of the fire. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would help us to know who we are in you, Lord. Teach us as as fragile and as flawed as we are, how to be salty, how to be your compassionate community, the one you made us to be. 
and remind us, of course, that it is, it's all for you. In your name we pray. Amen. If you would stand, uh, we'll receive communion together now. And uh, the way we do that here is ushers will come down the rows and they'll release you to come up front. You can just take a piece of bread from whichever server you choose, dip it in the cup, and they will say to you, remember the body and the blood, and you can just re re uh, respond with amen or I will remember. First, we'll read the scripture from 1 Corinthians uh, 2 when the Paul, was speaking, Paul was speaking to the church. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask you to bless this bread and this cup. Lord, may it be to us a spiritual food and drink and a means of your grace. As we receive it into our bodies, may we receive you once again. Come live inside us, make us new from the inside out, and send us out into this world to be salt and light. Let the world feast on us and taste and see that you are good, so that all may know your goodness. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Will you come?